Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I have a special show today. I have two guests speaking on one issue, but bringing two different perspectives to that one issue, which is the Sustainable Development Goals and the reason why this year, 2015, is an incredibly significant year for international development and really for all of humanity. So as uh, regular podcast listeners might know, and if you follow these issues, you probably are aware that this is the year, 2015, in which the Millennium Development Goals will expire, and they're going to be replaced by something called the Sustainable Development Goals. However, the precise contours, the precise indicators and targets that are in those goals are still somewhat up for debate. And this year, between now and the UN General Assembly in 2015, is when those goals and targets are going to be finalized. Accordingly, there is huge momentum in the international health community, international development community, among NGOs and people who really care about international development to want to try to raise the profile of this process. My first guest is John MacArthur of the Brookings Institute and the United Nations Foundation, and we discuss why even have a single international development agenda at all. We also talk a bit about uh, what we know so far of the substance of the Sustainable Development Goals as they currently are in draft form, including whether or not the top target to totally eradicate extreme poverty by 2030 is plausible. I then speak with Amina Mohammed, who is a special representative of the Secretary General and is in charge of steering this process inside the UN system. And we talk about her specific role in helping to set and steer the post-2015 development agenda, as it's called, in the UN system. Uh, and we talk a bit about the key inflection points throughout the year uh, against which we can measure progress towards an ambitious sustainable development goals agenda if you are new to this podcast, welcome. You can find links to subscribe on UN Dispatch and on globaldispatchespodcast.com. We also have a new standalone app for your iPhone and Android, so check those out. Uh, if you are a returning listener, thanks. I think you'll enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is my first interview with John MacArthur of the United Nations Foundation and Brookings Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. These goals are tools, ultimately, for focusing attention, for tackling a complex set of issues in an incredibly complex world full of 7 billion people and counting, uh, where everyone's got a mixed, mixed set of incentives, a mixed set of challenges, and really trying to say at least What's the core set of things that we're trying to do and how can we track progress against that? So in a world where sunlight's a great disinfectant, it's about really giving us a sense where we can have a common set of reference points for where we're trying to go and crucially a common set of reference points on how we're actually doing. 
I guess what's interesting to me is that there seems to be broad agreement around what you're saying. I mean, not just from like wonks like yourself or advocates, uh, but actual, you know, uh, governments of the developing world, uh, the people of the developing world, and also, you know, people of, of wealthier donor nations as well. That, I mean, at least to me, that seems like kind of a unique thing to have all these different constituencies coalescing around, if not very specific goals, the idea that we should have goals. I agree. It's one of the great victories implicit in the whole Millennium Development Goal agenda is that people see the value in even having goals. I mean, I was very involved, as you know, with uh, the early days of the MDGs and this was not a set accompli by any means that people would rally around them. It was uh, a new set of undertakings. It was imperfect. Uh, it was not uh, crystal clear on how it was all going to work, far from it. And it really took years of what I would describe as like a cascade effect of moving from words to specificity to scale to action to resources to collaborations and partnerships across sectors to seeing where things were going well, where things were uh, creating huge surprises where they weren't going well. And over the years, and it really took probably a decade for the notion of these goals to lock in from, I would argue, the mid-90s through to the mid-2000s, uh, we've seen that people say, wow, this is really helpful for, again, getting clarity around a common agenda, getting clarity for what's, what is it we're trying to do, and then crucially you know, prompting the question of how do these things fit together and uh, for actual actors in the equation, whether it's a CEO from a business or a government leader or a multilateral or an NGO, you know, what's my piece of this puzzle? So there's a very basic logic, which uh, in some senses is surprising that we even have to have that logic. But the flip side is we didn't have that logic guiding our efforts globally. And I think the MDGs were very successful in helping a few key pieces in particular get off the ground in a really big way, and the health successes are at the forefront of that. But the world has evolved, and uh, the agenda of the MDGs was itself you know, not complete, uh, nor completed. And so now there's a broad reference of, you know, we need to update these goals to fit the modern realities, and uh, the world's moved forward, so the notion of goals has to move forward too. I'm so fascinated by this sort of comparing of like the MDGs uh, as they were envisaged in the process of creating the MDGs in the late 90s and uh, in, in mm -hmm. the year 2000 to sort of what we're experiencing currently with this really pretty impressive uh, global coalition that's that's forming around um, the, you know, creating a, an ambitious agenda for the Sustainable Development Goals. How, I mean, you were, you were around there in the, in the early 90s doing your... Um, research and, and perhaps even advocacy, how does sort of this process, how, how is this, how are you experiencing this differently? How, like, what's different this time around? I mean, obviously, um, a lot of the uh, ideas behind the goals are, are similar in reducing poverty, uh, reducing uh, uh, the imprint and, and the devastation of infectious diseases, but the world has changed a lot, obviously, in the last, you know, 15 years or so. So like, if what's, what feels different about this, this time around for you? Uh, it's a great question. One thing I should just clarify, I thought the early 90s that I was there, I really got involved with Late the 90s. UN Millennium Project and really the the early part around the, the very beginning of the 2000s when these goals were moving from kind of words from the Millennium Declaration to actual practical policy targets. And a group of us in the Millennium Project were given the, 
the mandate to figure out like how do you translate this to an action plan that you know countries and businesses and individuals could act upon and that was a big you know huge process with hundreds even thousands of people around the world saying you know how does this fit into our walk of life and our experience and our reality and a lot of big debates over a few years and really leading up to 2005 where it crested into the public domain for many reasons, including some accidents of history that really pushed a lot of attentions onto the agenda, including a, even the Asian tsunami at the end of 2004. But what we see now is that I, I would argue that many of the problems that were thought unsolvable or not worth trying or really just too obscure to go after got solved. And like like what? Do you have not, a good example? Yeah, I was going to sh- give a few examples. So you have, for example, the uh, AIDS treatment uh, issue. So in the turn of the millennium in 2000, there was no one on AIDS treatment uh, around the world, uh, thanks to any international efforts uh, in the developing world. And so now we have uh, more than 10 million people on AIDS treatment, and that's uh, almost twice as many as we even thought needed treatment at that time. And it's just been scaled up and scaled up and scaled up where it's moved from, you know, too hard to even try to why haven't we gone to the next 5 million who need it now? Uh, and that the AIDS issue was really important because it was seen as so hard to do and there was no global fund to fight AIDS, TB, malaria. There was no PEPFAR. There were no resources for this. People said, oh, it needs, needs maybe 7 to $10 billion a year. Everyone said, wow, that's crazy talk. How are you going to get billions of dollars from zero? And it actually happened because the world set up some new institutions like the Global Fund and PEPFAR. They started to get behind real delivery where they thought about achieving service delivery targets at scale. And then that kickstarted this whole new way of thinking. And it was just a couple years later that people started to say, well, wait a sec, you can do AIDS. What about malaria? I mean, malaria is much easier. (laughs) No one needs to die of malaria. That's a, a simple problem relatively speaking, and then you had things like bed nets. People started to understand the modern technology of bed nets. They started to understand the modern technology of uh, treatment, artemisia. And then you had the launch of the President's Malaria Initiative in the United States, and you had the <clears throat> malaria window really open up in the Global Fund. And as that was going along, then you started to see people track, and Gavi and the immunization effort was moving along kind of quietly but hugely powerfully behind the scenes. Then people would start to look at goals uh, four and six on the MDG agenda every year. And they'd say, well, wait a sec, what about this this goal in between? Goal five, maternal health, uh, that's not going so well. How, we're doing pretty well all of a sudden on child health comparatively, and infectious disease are doing better, but this maternal health issue, it keeps scoring badly. And that then around 2008 led to this surge of interest and policy effort and resources around the gap in maternal health. And you saw one layer kept, kept leading to the next layer, like bricks in a wall, that were just building this institutional effort globally so that people said, you know, we need to do all of these things. So, uh, along, that, uh, so, so along those lines, um, the new development agenda, the sustainable development goals, yep. um, as they are currently drafted, uh, the top goal, and I think based on you know, my sort of understanding of diplomacy at the UN, the top goal, which is to totally eradicate extreme poverty as defined by mm-hmm. people on living in less than $1.25 a day, totally eradicated yep. by 2030. That will almost certainly be included in the final draft of the sustainable development goals. Um, it seems like so. a terribly yep. <laughs> audacious goal. Um, is it achievable? I mean, like how, like what based on current trends do you think 
will need to happen in order to to actually you know keep that goal and and to reach that goal? Well, this is one of the big questions, obviously, the, in many ways, the headline question. And it's, I would just flag, it's complex the way the MDGs have interacted with the progress to date. And so there are a lot of simple statements, like some people say, well, uh, you know, this goal was going to get achieved anyways, the current target to cut it by half by 2015. Other people think it's all China was responsible for everything. So just to put a few facts on the table. And, and you know, say the, the current nine, goal uh, was to, the, the, the Millennium Development Goal is to reduce the number of people living under extreme poverty by, by one half by uh, 2015. And that was achieved. Exactly. That has been achieved globally. Uh, that's already been achieved globally. And it looks like, and the data are getting sharper and sharper, but I've done a quick calculation based on the World Bank's uh, public data, and it looks like by this year, 2015, if you exclude China from the calculation, the rest of the developing world is going to achieve it too, on its own terms. And what you also see is that every region in the world has seen a decline in poverty uh, over the past 15 years, and this has really been a turning of the tide in many cases, especially in Africa. And I would argue that many of the scaled-up investments in areas like health, education, and most recently agriculture have been crucial to kickstarting a lot of that progress, even in Africa. So we have a, a complex story, and you know, your, your headline question is, is this a viable prospect? I would say the trajectory as it is today, if the lines, the curves keep going the way they do, suggests that we will get pretty close. And my colleague at Brookings, Lawrence Chandy, has done a lot of estimates on this, saying that, you know, we can get to within maybe 3 to 5% uh, down from roughly, you know, 15% today of the developing world uh, by that period. And to get to zero or to get to 1% or something is actually, that's pretty tough. And so the question is how, not whether the current trajectory will get us there because the, today's trajectories are exactly the problem we're trying to solve. And the question is, what are the practical things that need to get done to go the last mile in the toughest places? So that leads us very quickly to questions of uh, rural communities uh, and agriculture in particular, which I would say is kind of a partial success of the Millennium Goals. Uh, it's drawn attention to these rural agricultural investments, which are the livelihoods of the majority of the world's poorest people, but they need to do more. It also takes us to issues like infrastructure for growth and even bank accounts for the poorest people, and how do we think about those? But the other big category, and not just the rural areas, but the big category is the fragile states. And this is where some of these issues, we just were with uh, Amina Mohammed and uh, talking publicly about some of these issues uh, at Brookings this morning. She's uh, launching the Secretary General's report. And one of the questions she was raising is, how can we think about uh, sustainable development in the absence of talking about peace and justice? And she referenced uh, northeastern Nigeria, where she's from, as a place that's really living this out day-to-day uh, -day right now. And we need to be thinking about how inclusive societies uh, tackle their need for stability and development concurrently. And that is not what anyone would argue is an easy or simple problem. But we also know that the levels of conflict have gone down dramatically in the past 15 years. And so I think that if we can take a proactive approach to the kind of inclusive society approach to making the basic services available to kind of core institutions of justice, that's the problem that ultimately can help make sure we get that last mile covered. 
Well, that's an excellent segue to my conversation with Amina Mohammed, which is coming up right after my conversation with you. Um, but I wanted to maybe ask one sort of final question. I'm like trying to imagine uh, what a world without extreme poverty uh, might look like. I mean, is it a situation where like a country like, say, Zambia, uh, not a country in conflict, but a country that has grinding rates of extreme poverty, has like a basic standard of living that's you know similar to something like, uh, I don't know, like uh, like Laos today or Thailand? Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that what we're talking about, that in like 15 years' time, Zambia will have that kind of level level of, of economic activity? So again, it's a great question, Mark. And I think we have to think about uh, this not being the final uh, end point for humanity. So getting above a dollar a day or a dollar 25 or a dollar 50 or wherever we really refine that final uh, threshold for extreme poverty to be, you know, <clears throat> getting everyone one cent above that line uh, isn't, you know, making sure no one's poor. That's just eliminating the absolute worst problems of the planet in terms of poverty. And so, you know, getting to $2, getting to $3, getting to $5, these are still very low levels of income on a global scale, but we're seeing billions of people climb that ladder one step at a time. And that's going to go on for uh, generations until most of the world can hopefully have the living standards that the advanced economies consider normal today. The the flip side of it, though, is that what does it actually mean in practical terms? And here I would suggest just three things that this whole sustainable uh, development agenda boil down to. One is, what are the basic services for any human being on the planet? What are the minimum standards that give everyone kind of a minimum set of chances to participate in the global society and economy? And that's things like what is the basic, basic healthcare? What's the basic education? What's the access to the road? What's the access to a bank account? What, how do we make sure everyone has enough food to eat? The technology and the economic growth of the world is allowing us to approach that question in a way that was never possible before. And I think we're actually at an era now where we can think through, truly, if any person is born on the planet, then we can guarantee a minimum standard of, kind of safety and existence for each person. And that's kind of a breakthrough. The second big break. No, go ahead. The second big breakthrough is about how we build things. We're in now a peak moment in history in terms of the number of people who are moving into cities in particular. And it's probably about 50 to 60 million people a year. It's at the fastest rate it's ever going to be. Soon, over at some period, uh, most people will have moved to cities. But what that means is that we have a rare opportunity to build those cities and to build the infrastructure, the roads, the energy systems, the flood resilience, all these things in ways that are environmentally sound and that are efficient and that are kind of stable for, you know, low-cost access to basic services. And how we build this infrastructure in a low-carbon way but also a, a broad socially and environmentally resilient way, that's the second big, big thing that we can do. And then the third and the final one I would say is, how we approach accountability and how we approach the responsibilities, not just of governments, which is huge at the global and national and uh, local level, but how we measure performance among the companies who are going to play a crucial role in innovating and investing around all these agendas. Uh, How do we measure the environmental and uh, supply chain audits of different industries? 
there's a lot of movement around that and a lot of understanding that that needs to be taken in a much more specific way so that the good guys get celebrated and the bad guys feel held to account. But getting that to a real standard of performance, that's, I think, the third big breakthrough that we need to see over the next you know, few years. Uh, all right, John. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I will absolutely check back with you to see how we're making progress uh, towards those, those three issues you just outlined. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And now we're going to hear a different perspective, an insider's perspective. Here is my conversation with Amina Mohammed, the special advisor to the Secretary General on post-2015 development planning. Okay, my um, appointment was just over two years ago, and, and it was to come in and help to coordinate and make sure that we had coherence and the support to a member state process for the new development agenda. And it started, as you know, a couple of years ago. So what we've uh, had in place have been different resolutions from member states which have asked uh, the Secretary General in the first instance uh, to provide a report um, that would help them uh, see and, en and envision what uh, the Secretary General thought should happen after the MDGs. Um, and that first report is the one that we had uh, in 2000. And, uh, and, tw and 13, yes, 2013, A Life of Dignity. It was informed by um, the high-level panel that SG put in place uh, in order to get voices from outside, so that would help shape uh, what his vision would be um, in hearing from everyone. I think the criticisms over the years of while the MDGs were, were, a, good, they were a good idea, what they didn't do was bring in people um, to help shape the, uh, the MDG framework. Uh, so learning from that, um, this was this, this was the first task of mine was to first of all shepherd the high-level panel group, and and that we came out with a report for that. The second was to ensure that um, with the member states, uh, with the production of the Life of Dignity uh, report, that member states would then also find that useful um, in their negotiations over the open working group and the financing uh, for development um, working groups uh, outcome. So it sounds um, we, like you're describing a lot of various inputs that have been inputs, that, yes. that have been sort of collected over the last uh, couple years, uh, and they all seem to be pointing in in one direction in 2015. So going forward in 2015, how would you describe your role in sort of further shepherding this process? Well, all those inputs have ended up with um, the beginning of an intergovernmental process for negotiation. So the last mile to September. Um, and they are two distinct processes. One, of course, is, is finishing off on the post-2015 with the goals and the targets, but bringing together the second process of financing for development. My role here will be to continue to shepherd one voice and coherence with the, member, with the, the institutions behind the member states and helping to facilitate that these negotiations keep um, the highest possible ambition. What we have in place to do that is the synthesis report that was released um, yesterday by the Secretary-General. Um, and uh, that, that is a sort of a bridge to keeping that ambition high. And we, we try to help frame um, four different specific issues. One that sets the scene for the impetus of why we need such an ambitious transformative agenda. Uh, the second is really speaking to how you would do that with a set of goals and targets. And we know that member states have put out 17 goals and 169 targets. And the way we see 
uh, helping to communicate that for implementation at the country level is by introducing the six elements um, which you think are essential to uh, binding um, the agreement as one in, in taking it down to the country level. So that's actually speaking to, to dignity and to people and planet and uh, prosperity and justice and partnership. Um, and then uh, as we go through these negotiations, um, the commitments for the financing in July are going to be incredibly important to actually deliver on what is an ambitious set of goals and, and it's trying to help put that together because this will be really, um, uh, this will be really quite uh, a struggle. Um, and then Can you talk a little, least, oh, so pardon me, go ahead. Last but not least is that it's been, it's been the most open and transparent negotiation so far. So we want to make sure that we keep in civil society and business and parliamentarians, all the new players that we have um, on the block, engaged with this all the way to the end. Um, so you've been uh, working in international development for uh, a very long time. Uh, now you're at the heart of this uh, SDG process. I'd be curious to learn uh, your impression on how this process is differing uh, from the MDG process uh, in the late 90s that you know, came to fruition in 2000 with the launch of the Millennium Development Goals. How does this feel different? Are you experiencing uh, this um, you know, process of creating the goals any differently? What, what, what big differences come to mind? I think first that there's a longer run-up to um, you know, setting another agenda. Uh, and that, that's a very big difference because, frankly, we, we woke up in September 2000 and we had a, a framework. Uh, countries and civil society were not aware of it. It took the best part of five years to understand what had landed. This has been a communication and conversation that's happening over the last two years, so distinctly different um, from, from the MDGs. I think the second, um, of course, that is very different is for once we are now uh, speaking to issues that um, will embed themselves in countries reaching their full potentials and that development's not just an add-on. It's a central part of what we want to achieve and, and hence the, the whole emphasis on sustainability or integration of the economic, environmental, and, and social agenda, that it's not just about the social agenda, that it, if it doesn't hang together in these three dimensions, then what we're doing is just Band-Aid. Uh, that's very clearly different um, from, from what we did in 2000. Um, and I think the third is that, you know, we're getting commitment um, from member states who are in the lead. It's very difficult because these are not experts as we had to frame the MDGs and um, it is a difficult notion now to have member states take a universal agenda where development has always been addressed north-south in the past. This is now about all of us together in the same ship. Um, and we've got different roles of responsibilities, different needs. Um, and, and I think that that's um, distinctly different. Um, the implications of it are much wider um, and the concerns around it much deeper. Uh Right, because I mean, it seems to me that that one of the you know the key differences, just as you described, between the MDGs and the SDGs, is that the uh, SDGs place requirements and responsibilities on the donor countries and and the developed world as well. Presumably, that would make it uh, a bit harder to achieve a universal consensus around what those precise roles and responsibilities is. And you're just describing to me that your job is to is to make sure that the ambition is set sort of exceedingly high and, and, and the ambition stays high. So what um, big challenges do you see to your job uh, to keep the ambition level uh, very high? Like what are the big diplomatic hurdles or, or barriers that you can foresee in the coming year in the coming year that you 
need to uh, work through? I think first we still haven't um, we still haven't completely understood as a, um, a whole the implications of a universal agenda that it really is about everyone looking in their backyard to see what those priorities are, um, and, and those implications will play out because the more you think through that, then we have different responses to it, and I think that's going to be a problem. Um, but not one that we can't get over because I think what we need to sell is that this agenda together will do so much more um, on other complicated global political issues like the peace and conflict agenda, like the human rights agenda, the other two pillars of, of um, the United Nations. And, and that's, I think, you know, where there is a big struggle is that, you know, let's look at the potentials of this agenda actually solving other problems that come to play out on the floor. Uh, the other, of course, is that, you know, what we say for the for the development agenda is 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 somewhat um, we're, we're asking for things that uh, in a universal context context are hard representation in multilateral institutions. Um, we're also asking that you know we play a bigger role with trying to facilitate the use of domestic resources um, uh, in addition to 0 0.7 uh, new donors uh, for 0 0.7. Um, what are the incentives that you would give to them if, if, if um, we're talking about regions of the country that, that have very big challenges with um, conflict? Um, and it's maybe and just, just uh, as a point of clarification worth pointing out that by 0 0.7, you're referring to the target ODA. that a country uh, uh, contributes a point, 0.7% of its gross national income to official development assistance. Absolutely. I mean, there has to be a recommitment to that. Um, there also has to be a, a better, more efficient use of it, uh, directed and targeted better at um, uh, our least developed countries. Um, I think that we need to use it to leverage um, domestic resources uh, to get the scale that we need because the underlying ask of this agenda is that we leave no one behind and that really does mean scale. That means giving service um, to everyone, opening up opportunities for everyone, really dealing with the issues of inequality. Um, in a way where, where, where there will be you know, policies that will have to address some of the structural imbalances. Um, so along those lines, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, a key inflection point in this year being a conference on financing for the SDGs. Can you, I guess, describe what the stakes are at that conference and what, um, you know, what that conference is all about and what you hope to come out of it? Well, for the MDGs, after we had agreed the goals, um, uh, in fact, Goal 8 considered um, debt, trade, and aid in the Monterey conference that came out after that you brought us you know, forth with the, the 0 0.7 um, uh, for, 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 uh, for overseas development assistance. In this case, we are revisiting um, the commitments from that conference, um, which largely hold still today, but we are looking at much more um, than what we really applied to the development agenda in the last uh, 15 years, which was a real sort of focus on, on how um, development assistance played its role. Now we're looking at domestic resource mobilization. We're looking at the private sector um, and much more funding that we know can be unlocked from different um, sorts of vehicles like the pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, um, providing instruments to, to give longer-term uh, financing to countries that um, need it, uh, especially those that are coming out of conflict and, and fragile state. Uh, so that's different for Addis, and, and Addis Ababa is where the Financing for Development Conference will hold in July. So the set of commitments that we expect to get out of 
um, the the conference need to be ones that will respond to the 17 goals that um, have been um, have been developed by member states, and that's going to be a big ask because it, it is not. It's not automatically we wake up the day after signing this agreement that all is on the table. It is opening up the possibilities that if you have a good plan for attaining sustainable development, the resources are available for you to to reach out and to access. Uh, that's different from from before. That really is um, a departure uh, from what we've been discussing before. Uh, I guess finally, just to wrap up, uh, um, are there any... Is the, what would be your uh, as sort of the the sort of official representative of the UN on this issue? What, what's your ideal outcome in September? Um, I, ideal outcome would be that we have um, this uh, set of goals that I see as a pipeline of investments that we see commitments made in the financing track that bring us a declaration that really speaks to um, what we have to respond to in this world today, and then we all know that we've got still incredible levels of poverty and we can eradicate them in, in, in our generation. Um, the second will be really to look at how we bring in everyone uh, to an economy that is more just and uh, that we deal with the inequalities in the world um, and that we bring the resources that are required to do that over time and that we uh, meet the expectations that this is a transition for finishing off the MDGs and engaging with a much broader and deeper agenda. So to see that in September uh, also give ambition to um, what we say is the third most important process of the year, and that's getting an effective uh, legal outcome for the climate change agreement. Uh, well, Ms. Mohammed, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful, and uh, I'm sure the audience will, will greatly appreciate learning your perspective on, on all the, the messy process uh, that will hopefully <laughs> yield to an ambitious outcome. So thank you. Very, very complex, but it is a time for global action. We can do it in this, in this next nine months. We can make it happen. Well, thank you all for listening. I think that was an exceedingly helpful conversation. You know, if you want to understand the UN, you have to understand process around the UN because at the United Nations, like most bureaucracies, but I think at the United Nations in particular, process often dictates outcomes. So again, very helpful conversation. Thank you to Amina Mohammed. Thank you to John MacArthur. Uh, and let's have an ambitious set of international development goals and an ambitious climate change agreement in 2015. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye.